Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. Good to be together and to worship our Lord uh, this uh, fourth Sunday in Advent. Uh, some of you are aware I, I missed the last two Sundays here, and that's kind of a rather rare thing for a pastor to do during, during Advent. Um, and if I didn't have such a good associate pastor, I wouldn't have dared do that. But uh, Pastor Ryan did an excellent job of, of uh, walking through the first two chapters of our Advent theme, Glad Tidings in Titus. And we're going to look at chapter three here today then. Should just mention the reason I was gone. By the way, uh, was I had the opportunity to help my son Andrew move uh, from San Antonio, Texas, where he's completed about two years of uh, training with the uh, Air Force, and uh, he then moved up to Lewis McCord uh, Joint Military Base in Tacoma, Washington. Uh, there he'll be stationed at now. And, and uh, Andrew was desiring a driving partner on on that 33-hour. Drive. Well, actually, that's if all the roads were good, which they weren't. But um, so anyway, I, I got to fly down to Texas, and uh, we together then thoroughly enjoyed a, a road trip. Uh, we went through some areas of the country neither of us had ever been to before, and, and saw some awesome displays of God's creation out there, uh, northwestern Texas, and then New Mexico, Utah, um, Idaho, Oregon, and, and up into Washington. Um, we got them moved in, and then I started looking at the forecast back here. <laughs> and I managed to catch a flight back a day early um, to get in on our, the full effect of the four days of, of snowstorm here. Uh, I, I guess I made that choice rather than ending up stuck maybe in Denver for uh, days on end instead. Um, so anyway, winter has certainly appeared up here in the, in the, Northwoods, or in the north area of Minnesota, and, and uh, I'm definitely noticing the difference between uh, Texas, uh, where I spent uh, one day just a few hours outside with uh, another son, uh, Samuel, uh, just wearing a t-shirt and, and helping to uh, build a chicken coop in his backyard. Um, and, and I contrast that then with this stormy weather conditions that have now appeared here. And uh, you know, there's something about the snow appearing that changes everything, doesn't it? Uh, and, and whether you see that as good or bad, I guess that depends on whether you're driving a snowmobile or pushing a snowblower. Um, but regardless, the snow appearing um, changes things for us. Uh, however, it hasn't really affected things very much for those folks down in Texas. And I, I was going to show you some pictures of that, but I thought maybe that'd be a little painful today. Um, and also, I was a little concerned that it might turn more of you into snowbirds. And there's enough of you that I know are planning to head out of here as soon as Christmas is over. And so I didn't want to encourage more of that. Um, but anyway, during Advent, we celebrate how the appearing of something, actually of someone, changed everything for all of mankind, no matter where they live. And the Apostle Paul describes this to Titus as the appearing of the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior. Pastor Ryan noted how that word appearing it is the same as the word epiphany, and it 
came up in, uh, in previous chapters in Titus, and we're going to see it again here now in chapter 3. I invite you to stand in reverence to God's word as, as we read from there. I want you to also then just notice here what, what this passage reveals here about, first of all, the natural com- condition of all of mankind, including you and I, before Jesus came on the scene and into our lives, and then contrast that with what we can now have because he came. Titus chapter 3, beginning with verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for all people. Let us pray. Lord, we do give you thanks for your word today. In the book of Titus, the, the gospel nuggets that are there, revealing that glad tidings for all who will look to Jesus. And we pray that uh, you would help us understand afresh today our need and the hope and change that he brings. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. At Christmas, then, we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And and Paul says that when Jesus came to earth, the goodness and the loving kindness of God appeared. It's not that God wasn't good before or or full of love for mankind before, but he was invisible to the human eye. Many of you have seen movies or or TV shows with uh, the invisible man or something like that. Uh, somebody who would be in the room doing things, and you could even see what those things were happening, but, but uh, no one could actually see him. And, and then maybe the potion would wear off, and he'd become visible. Well, when Jesus was born on earth well over 2,000 years ago, the incarnation took place, and God became visible in the form of a human infant who then grew up to be a man who, who lived among humanity, and he lived his life in such a way as to reveal then the character of God to us. And then he demonstrated his great love for, man, for humanity in, in his sacrificial death on the cross, which was necessary to save us. And, and so why was the incarnation and the crucifixion necessary? Let's begin there as we look in verse 3 here then. And, and there we see the need of salvation, why it is necessary. Why was it necessary for God to send his son to the earth What was the human condition in the world when Christ was born in a stable? And what is it today, even with all of the increases of knowledge and all the advances in technology? What we're told here is this. We were all foolish and disobedient. That is both mentally and morally depraved. To be foolish is to be lacking sense. And you know, we we like to think of ourselves as intelligent, cognitively advanced, but but God's word says that our natural human condition is lacking sense. It's unwise. And we are also disobedient then. 
That is, that we, were, we were doing what we knew to be wrong, uncompliant, going against what we know we should do. goes on to tell us we also were led astray and enslaved. While we lacked sense and good moral judgment, that also then made us prey to evil forces we couldn't control. And we have been deceived by the great deceiver, the devil. And that is, we have believed some of his lies, and we've been seduced and led astray, caused to wander from a relationship with our Creator God. We were deceived by the evil one, but also then held captive or enslaved by our own worldly passions and pleasures. And he goes on to say, we lived in malice and envy. Passing our days in malice and envy. Our selfish nature was wishing people evil and, and resenting their good, both of which then were destroying our relationships with other people. And, and furthermore, he says, we were both hated and hating. Hated by others and hating one another. Hostile in our relationships with others. That was our natural condition. What a mess we were in and helpless to fix. And then the goodness and the loving kindness of God appeared in the form of a baby born there in Bethlehem that night so many years ago, and he brought salvation to the world. And for those of us then that look to him, his birth in the stable, his short earthly life of 33 years, his death on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead, then we can say he saved us. So first we established our human need for salvation. Now as we go on here, then we see the source of salvation, where it originates. And it, it, he makes it very clear, verse 4, not of ourselves. <coughs> Excuse me. John Stott says this, the possibility of self-salvation is one of the major delusions of much modern thinking. It teaches that salvation comes not from without, someone else coming then to our rescue, but from within, as we discover ourselves in our own resources. Look within yourself, we're told, and you have the power to change the world. However, without God in the picture, we only make the matter worse. No, our, our salvation must come from one outside of us, one who is not foolish, but all wise, one who is not deceived, but rather the source of truth, one who is not envious and hating, but rather full of compassion and love for all mankind, no matter how big a mess we've made. Our, our salvation then originates not from ourselves, but from the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior. And as, as I dug into this phrase here, I, I found something rather interesting. The word that is translated here in our Bibles uh, from the Greek is, is this word philanthropia. Sounds an awful lot like philanthropy because that's where it comes from. Uh, a philanthropist is a person who sacrifices what he or she has seeking to promote <clears throat> the human welfare of others. And you know, <coughs> in the history of our country, um, there have been various people who have been known as real philanthropists, uh, if you especially if you consider then the large dollar amounts that they've given away. There are guys like Andrew Carnegie who, uh, after selling his steel corporation in the 1890s, financed <clears throat> over 1,800 libraries across our nation, uh, in all giving away 90% of his fortune. 
There was John D. Rockefeller who retired from business in the 1890s and, and gave away $530 million, which is an awful lot back then. Um, about 450 of that went to medicine. There was Henry Ford, founder of the Ford Motor Company. Um, a foundation was established by him and his son. Uh, the Ford uh, Foundation in the fiscal year 2014, for instance, uh, reported assets of $12.4 billion and, and they approved $507 million in grants for that year. There, there are many current, extremely wealthy, so-called philanthropists as well, who have set up foundations that, that give away millions and even billions of dollars. And I'm not going to give any of them free publicity today. Uh, several of them get more attention in the news maybe than they should. And, and it seems to me also that, that many of them have significant ulterior motives and, and agendas behind their giving as well. And that really is the danger of all human philanthropists in the past and the present as well. Their generosity can be greatly tainted by their own self-centered motives and misguiding agendas rather than a genuine love for humanity. But it's interesting then to think of God here as it reveals and as the one true philanthropist who out of genuine love for all of mankind gave very sacrificially. As John 3:16 so well describes, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. It, it's the goodness and the loving kindness of God that is the source of, of our salvation, and that's what we celebrate at Christmas. And, and we need to look further here in verse 5 to explain this. Uh, what is God's criteria then for who he will save? Do, do we have to at least do something to earn his favor? What's the ground of our salvation? What does it and what doesn't it rest on? Do we, do we have to at least kind of clean up our own life a little bit? Uh, make some improvements to prove to God we're serious about him? Rack up a, a, a few good deeds that we can list as proof? Meet God halfway, so to speak? Well, the answer to all that is no. We only need to admit how messed up and helpless we are. Such admission is, is repentance. It's turning from our sin to God. And Paul makes very clear here that he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Ephesians 2 tells us that as well. For by grace, it's been, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not a result of works lest anyone should boast. If our works were even a small part of our salvation, then we could boast. And then some of us would think, well, I have more reason to boast than somebody else I know. However, we are saved as a gift. Do you get Christmas gifts because you deserve them or because somebody loves you? You're saved as a gift because of a God who is good and because of how he feels about you. He loves you no matter who you are or what you have done. And God in his goodness and his loving kindness extends mercy to us all because he is merciful and he does not want to give us in um, the condemnation that we all deserve. He provides a way of deliverance. And so verse 5 says he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. It was God's mercy that sent his son to earth. It was God's great mercy that is shown in the substitutionary death of that son on the cross where the wrath of God then that we deserved was placed on him, Jesus, the sinless son of God. <clears throat> so then practically, 
Is it, how is it that God shows this mercy and brings this salvation to us? We look next at the means of salvation, how it comes to us. It is the work of the Holy Spirit of God to apply then God's salvation subjectively to individual hearts and lives. And here Paul describes then how God brings that salvation to us and he says that God saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Washing of regeneration, just, just what is that? Well, pretty much all the commentaries say this refers to water baptism. And I know of no other spiritual washing that scripture talks about. So, so how is baptism connected to our salvation? Well, well, baptism, the washing of water on the outside, is certainly a visual picture of what God does on the inside in one's heart and life, the washing away of our sin and guilt. Lutherans see it as more than just symbolic, though, but as a means of bringing that salvation in Jesus to our individual hearts and lives. They, they see baptism as something that God does, uh, even to then plant faith in the heart of a little child so that that faith then will be nurtured by the teaching of the Word of God in the context of the Christian community, which ideally then takes place in the home and also in the church. So what does it mean that baptism is a washing of regeneration? Well, regeneration means new birth. And a similar wording then to being born again. And when we are born physically, the Bible tells us that we're spiritually dead. We're bent on sin and rebelling against God and his will for our lives. And thus we need to be born again, born of the Spirit, given spiritual heart that is alive to God and his will for our life. Dead people can't make themselves alive. God has to do that. And the Holy Spirit of God does that. He, he makes us come spiritually alive through the word and the sacraments. Through them, then, the Holy Spirit shows us our sinful heart condition Shows us the forgiveness that's offered us in Jesus Christ and brings us to trust in him as our Lord and Savior. And not only do we need to be born again, then, or, or we need regeneration, but we also need, you might say, an ongoing renovation. It's kind of uh, like a, if you buy an old house, it, it, it needs constant fixing and improvements. Uh, having the indwelling Holy Spirit is, is like having a resident contractor living right there doing the work of making improvements in our life. And, and there's this process then of an ongoing moral renovation or, or transformation that, that follows that new birth. And, and Paul talks about that here as the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And, and I find it interesting that, that at Pentecost when Peter preached pointing out people's sin and need for Jesus and people then were convicted in their hearts of their sin. Um, and, and they asked, well, what should we do? Peter's response was this. Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then he says two things accompany baptism there. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to say, for this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as our Lord God will call to himself. And so the Holy Spirit of God gives a new birth and an ongoing renewal through word and sacraments. And God gives the Holy Spirit in no small measure, we're told in verse 6 here. He pours it out richly upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior. And Paul goes on to remind us also then here that we're justified, and again he says this, by, by his grace. Not by anything we've done to deserve it, but because of what Christ has done for us. 
And so as you think of that word justification, what does that mean? It means that God declares us righteous. We know we're still sinners, but he declares us righteous because he has transferred our sin to Christ's account and Christ's righteousness to our account. <coughs> and regeneration means then that God makes us righteous through the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. And then he causes that ongoing renewal in our lives. There's just a couple other things we need to touch on as we wrap this up today. As you look in verses 7 and 8, it brings up the goal of salvation, what, what it leads to. Verse 7 says, So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What's an heir? It's, uh, an heir is one who is in a position to receive an inheritance uh, at some later date, right? It, it, it's based on, though, that current relationship you, with you have that one from whom you expect to receive that inheritance. <clears throat> Perhaps some of you here expect someday to get a significant earthly inheritance. Maybe there are others who have parents who have significant debt and, and uh, will, will leave their kids with bills for their funeral. And there might be other parents who have a bumper sticker on their RV that says, I'm spending my kids' inheritance now. Well, regardless of what kind of an earthly inheritance you expect to receive, Paul says here that, that because we have been justified by God's grace, and adopted into his family, then we have every reason to expect to receive an eternal inheritance in heaven someday. We become then co-heirs with Jesus Christ of all of the glories of heaven. That's the end that he points us to, the goal of our salvation. And that brings us to one last thing here in verse 8. The, the evidence of salvation, how it shows itself. It is, um, we who have eternal inheritance when we recognize that, then we hang on less tightly to things of this earth. It's only stuff, and we know we can't take it with us. And, and, and so then, as a result, when we see people in need, we, we desire to help them because God has been so good to us. And besides that, because we've been justified by faith in Jesus Christ and forgiven of all of our sins, then we're willing to forgive others their sins against us. And we do that not because they deserve it any more than we did, but because a merciful, philanthropic God has given us way better than we deserve. And we want others to come to know that grace of God and that forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ our Savior. And that's really the point that Paul is pressing home in this last chapter of Titus. He says here in verse 8 then, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And so you see, we, we have been called and saved by Jesus Christ, called and then to become people that are devoted to good works out of love for God and love for our neighbor. Let us pray. Well, our God, thank you today for your word through Titus and these little glimpses we've had uh, during Advent of your great love for us and how... When Jesus appeared on the scene, that changed everything. It provided a way that we could know forgiveness of our sin and eternal life. It provided a way that, that we could be made new uh, in our hearts and our lives. And uh, that we would have a relationship with you. And out of love for you and, and walking in that relationship with you, we would have concern for others around us. And Lord, as we celebrate this Christmas season, we 
see the hurts of many around us. And Lord, we ask that you'd move us to, to encourage and to help them and to be people known for good works and, and for love for others. Uh, and Lord, we pray that you'd use us then to uh, point to the hope that we have in Jesus and the forgiveness of sin that we know here and now and also the eternal inheritance that we look ahead to. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.